Hi everyone, it's Kesonga. Just a reminder that you can listen to all of our podcasts ad-free on the Headspace app. Headspace it's great to see you back here again. Before we begin our journey into the awesomeness of time, I just wanted to give you a little heads up that today we're going to be talking about death and dying. I hope in an ultimately life-affirming way, but for some people this might be a particularly challenging thing to think about. If this is you, it's absolutely fine to come and rejoin us next time. Okay, so I'm standing here and it's a hundred years in the future. The year is 2121 and I'm joined by fellow longtime thinker Vincent Iolenti. Vincent, where are we right now and what are we looking at? Well, we're in Finland, uh, specifically the island of Okiluoto in the very west of Finland. And you can see a thicket of pine trees ahead and just beyond them you see the the beautiful Baltic Sea over there. Oh yeah, it's really pretty, but it's also really freezing. The wind is absolutely bitter. How cold is it? Looks like it's about a negative 10 degrees Celsius today. And where are we going now? Well, we're heading down a pavement ramp uh, between these two walls of blasted rock, and we're seeing the entrance of a dark tunnel. You can See that it's dimly lit and these uh, ceiling lights, they're disappearing off into the distance. What is going on? Where is this place? We're in this facility called Onkelo, the world's first underground repository built to dispose of used-up nuclear fuel from Finland's commercial nuclear power plants. Right. Because nuclear waste takes so long to break down and it can be toxic to humans and the environment for millennia, It has to be hidden in a place where it won't resurface for an extremely long time, right? Yeah. And this is a colossal project. Planning for it began back in the 1980s. Tunneling and excavation began in 2004. Began taking in waste in the 2020s. And now, in the year 2120, 6,500 tons of spent nuclear fuel from Finnish power plants has been placed down here. 400, 450 meters underground in Finland's dense granite bedrock. And this facility has been designed to last over 100,000 years. 100,000 years. I can't even begin to get my head around that. Yeah, just to put that into perspective, the pyramids in Egypt. Some of the oldest large-scale human-made monuments. The oldest one of those is only 4,700 years old. So this is an unprecedented endeavor in human history. What's your connection to this place? I'm actually an anthropologist from the United States. My particular research interest lies in how different kinds of communities understand and relate to the passage of time, specifically the future. I decided I needed to go to Finland. I was there for about uh, 32 months to search for techniques to help expand uh, modern society's awareness of time. I recorded 120 interviews mostly with this very specific subgroup of nuclear waste experts called safety case experts. 
Their mission is to convince Finland's really strict nuclear regulatory authority that far future Finns are going to be safe from radioactive harm. Okay. So first, safety case experts go out and collect all this research on Finland's geological history, its past climates, its past ice ages, its human habitations, collecting field data about the past. Uh-huh. But then what do you do? You have to start thinking about the future now. So safety case experts were developing thousands of pages of technical evidence, detailing the Onkelo repository's design and presenting all these scenarios that forecast distant future ice ages and earthquakes and climate changes, landscape changes for millennia. And I did this because, you know, most of us are living in a really short-term world. We're stuck in the rapid pace of consumer society, the hustle of the gig economy. Uh, But we're also facing slower-moving, kind of creeping crises like biodiversity loss or uh, climate change. And these could wipe out our species entirely. For most of us in the far future, far past of the Earth, we don't even believe in it, most of us, right? It's just an idea. What we have the most control over, though, is the cultural constitution of our short-termism. Welcome back. It's really great to be here together again. Last time we gathered, we discovered how it was that our world has become so short-term. Then we began to challenge this idea that being so short-term is a reflection of who we are as humans. And then we started to really activate a deeper connection with future generations. And that leads us to today, in which Vincent, me and folk from around the world are going to examine how do we actually become more long term. If you did the long time experience after part one, you might have already had a taste of this. Don't worry if it made you cry, it seems to do that. In it, we're practicing a concept I'm calling becoming polytemporal. So to break that down, it comes from the Greek poly for many and temporal for times. In other words, to exist in many times. It's about strengthening our inner time-travelling muscles and becoming more comfortable with being in the far future and the distant past so that we don't get whiplash when we contemplate the world beyond our own lifetimes. And strange as it sounds, it's quite likely that over the past year or so, you may have been exercising those polytemporal muscles without even realising it. Over the pandemic, I found myself listening to more music. Whether it was finding the soundtrack to working from home or trying to find some calm. And it turns out that I'm not alone. We listened to way more music than normal over the pandemic. And one of the musical genres that has grown the most in popularity over this time is ambient music. Ambient music as a term was first coined by musician and composer Brian Eno. He talks about it as music which is designed to induce calm and space to think. He also just happens to be a foundational long-term thinker. 
I remembered that as a kid, I was very interested in time. I used to build model railway lines. I didn't make circuits, so the train went round and round on the floor. I piled up books and so on to build the slowest gradient I could possibly make. And I had a stopwatch. My dad repaired watches as a hobby. And the whole intention of the game was to keep adjusting the gradient so that I increased the length of time that it took for the little truck to get from top to bottom. In 1978, I moved to New York. Very early on, when I had first arrived, a friend of mine called me up and said, oh, I'm having a party, do you want to come? She gave me the address and I took a taxi and the taxi went further and further downtown into a more and more grim part of New York. And I thought, this can't be the place that she lives in. I went up in this old elevator to this amazingly lavish, beautiful loft. And I thought, this is so strange that somebody would choose to build a place like this in an area like this. I said to her, oh, it's a nice place. How do you enjoy living here? And she said, oh, this is the best place I've ever lived. And so I suddenly thought, oh, that's interesting that some people live in quite a small here. Their sense of here is actually quite restricted. For me, here would include the neighborhood the town as well, the city. I had this idea in my mind of the small here and the big here. And then I started to notice the same thing about time. People lived in a very narrow time frame. They didn't really think about next month or next year very much because they didn't really expect to be there. They expected to be somewhere else. I came up with this idea of the long now and the short now and the short now is where I think people are more and more encouraged to live. The now of instant gratification of needs that need to be satisfied straight away, not thinking too much about the consequences of things. What a huge difference that made to a society if they were a short now society or a long now society. Brian's questioning of a short now society has gone on to be so influential in the development of long-term thinking. And it's infused the way he writes music. Time is sort of the primary material of music. The fact that it's an experience that has duration. When you look at a picture on the wall, you can look for a fraction of a second or you can look for several hours. Most people choose the fraction of the second option. But nonetheless, there would be no point in listening to a fraction of a second of a piece of music. We have a sense of time. We are responsive to the atmosphere of time that we're in. So I think, uh, I discovered really, that if you make a piece of music that doesn't enforce that sense of time, doesn't insist on a, a regular pulse, for example, people's physical attitude becomes different. People kind of settle down to the sort of speed of the music, surrender for a while. 
I was sitting in a brand new airport, Cologne. And it was a beautiful, beautiful airport. It had a huge plate glass front, so there was sunlight pouring in on this particular Sunday that I was sitting there waiting for my plane back to England. And <laughs> playing on the airport tannoy system was this German disco music, really loud. And I thought, how weird that you could design an airport like this. Think about the textures of the floor and the carpeting and the way the light fell and the way people moved around and not think about the sound. They're just sort of plastering any kind of music onto any kind of situation with no thought about what it is supposed to do. And so I started thinking, what would be the right music for a space like this? In 1978, Brian released Music for Airports. It is one of the defining works of ambient music. What you can hear now is the first track on that album. In the particular case of Music for Airports itself, there was some interesting functional demands in that if you're making music for a situation where the music will frequently be interrupted, that leads you to certain sonic choices, I think. What kinds of sounds can be interrupted? I didn't want the sounds to be too familiar, but I didn't want them to be too alien either. I want them to be both ignorable and interesting. What do you want to achieve by that music? Well, as a nervous flyer, I was at that time, I want to achieve some kind of reassurance. Usually, music in planes or airports tries to reassure you by being relentlessly cheerful, and that really worries me. The best thing to do is to make people feel that their death is not so important. Now, that seems like a big task for a piece of music, but I thought, yes, I can think of music that makes me think that I don't care so much about dying. I'm not thinking that I'm the only thing in the universe. That is one of the experiences of surrender, that you stop being the single most important point in the universe. You're a part of a fabric when you surrender. You're part of a network, of a mesh, of an ecology. The sense of time is important in that. So I thought, if we let time float, we stop being clockwork about it. Perhaps our consciousness can also float a little bit and isn't so anchored to this me in this now.
So last night, I had this terrible nightmare. I just read an article about climate change with really confronting future scenarios. The dream was about my graphic death and the end of the world. I'll spare you the details, but it left me feeling really on edge. So today, listening to music for airports, I found it so soothing and kind of healing. And now hearing Brian talk, I understand that the solace I found in the music in the face of death is no coincidence. That's exactly what it was designed to do. But grappling with our mortality is tough. It's a really uncomfortable thing to think about, right? And most of us just avoid doing it. Part of this is to do with the fact that we live in a culture that literally denies death. Whether that's through our eternal youth face creams, those Instagram filters, or at the other end of the scale, cryogenics. Our avoidance of death causes huge logistical problems. Most adults in the UK haven't written a will, haven't planned for their death. But that could be the least of our troubles when it comes to the wider implications of our culture of death denial. Our inability to acknowledge our deaths, that all of us will die, translates into an inability to deal with the fact that there will be a world beyond our lifetimes. And that in turn translates into an inability to care for that world. So we need to come to terms with the fact that we will die. Fortunately, there is a growing death-positive movement to help us do just that. The death positive movement is something that had roots uh, from Caitlin Doty, who is a mortician who wrote a tremendous book called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. In 2013, she tweeted, so there's a sex positive movement, but why isn't there a death positive movement? That birthed the revolution, as I like to call it. Meet a Lua Arthur, a leader in the death positivity movement. I have a full existential crisis a lot of times when I walk down the street, knowing that everybody's just going about their daily business all the time, and that we have this elaborate setup for life where most of us keep death so far away when I'm constantly like, wow, everybody's just going on like they could not make it to dinner this evening. They're just concerned about bills or the dog or how fast the person in front of them is walking or the fact that they're late. And how does that really matter when our death is possible at any moment? Death positivity looks like not being afraid to have the conversation. It means not pretending as though it's not happening. It means saying the weird thing about your mortality at the dinner party when it crosses your mind. It means speaking about your grief. It means acknowledging that people die. It means sitting with it as it is. And when we are living with our death in perspective, it creates a lot more value for life itself. I'm consistently putting myself in the practice of thinking about who I want to be on my deathbed.
I started my professional career as a lawyer. So I worked at Legal Aid providing free legal services, mostly in domestic violence. The work felt good in the spirit. You know, I was doing work that was in contribution for society. And I hid my sensitivity. I would feel so deeply for what my clients were going through. I'd want to cry in court all the time. And I developed a really deep depression during that time. I started thinking about my death. If I were to die from this disease, because depression can be a life-limiting illness when left untreated, who would I have been? Why am I not living the way that I actually want to? So I took this leave of absence, and I was at this point in my life where I was looking for any meaning. Like, just somebody tell me what I'm supposed to do with my life because this isn't working. And I went to go visit a friend of mine in Cuba. One night, I meet a woman. We stayed out too late, and she'd done up my hair in a way to make me extra beautiful. And I wanted to return the thing that she put in my hair to her before I left the following morning. As I was on the road, I was walking to her house. A car almost hit me. I slammed my hands on the hood and immediately was like, oh my God, I'll get it together. Don't die on these streets here in Cuba. My parents will kill me. After I return the thing to her, I make it to the bus stop in time. And along the way, I meet a woman standing in line to the bus. I sit down, we start chatting. And I find out she's a fellow traveler from Germany and she has uterine cancer, and she's on this bucket list type of trip around the world to see the top six places in the world she wants to see before she dies. That really intrigued me. I was 34 years old, and she was 36. When she talked to her friends and family about the possibility of dying, they would shoo-shoo it. You're going to get better. Don't worry about it. Don't think about that. Have hope. And she didn't have any places where she could talk about her fears of death. I started asking her a lot of questions about her life, and then I asked her a lot of questions about her death. What her legacy would have been or what she would be leaving here. The type of person she wants to be on her deathbed. A bunch of things that I would say are inappropriate societally. I had her look at her body in the grave. What about your body decaying? Like, what does that look like? What does that feel like? What was still undone in her life? Well, what else did she want to do that she hadn't yet done? I was asking her these questions, and I started asking them of myself. Through the conversation, we were giddy and giggling, and we had such a great time. And I also, during that moment, felt the most alive that I'd felt in quite some time, being in conversation with somebody about their life and the meaning of it. And I looked out the window, and I said, I could talk to people about their death. It was pretty clear. It was very, very clear. She stayed on the bus with me and stayed with me all the way to Santiago de Cuba. Eventually, we check into the guest house where I'd rented for the night. And as we're getting ready to go to sleep, we're, we're listening to the Backstreet Boys and like drinking rum and just having the time of our lives. And as we're getting ready to go to sleep, she says, I hope this isn't weird or anything. And I said, what is it? And she asked me if I remembered almost being hit by a car when I was in the town before I'd made it to the bus. And I said, yeah. And I didn't know why she would know that. I hadn't told her. And she'd been in that car that had almost hit me. She said when I hit the hood, she looked up at me and said, I think this woman's going to save my life. Elua transitioned to a new career, from lawyer to death doula. I'll let her explain what that involves. 
When people are healthy, we help them walk through their fears around death and death anxiety, mostly through death meditations and also through the end-of-life planning process because all the fears around death come up then. When people are getting close to the end of life, when they know what they're going to be dying of, we help them create the most ideal death for them under the circumstances. And through that, often, we talk about what their values are for living, and we also do a bit of a life review, what's important for them to impart to others at their death, and also questions about legacy. In 1888 in France, a wealthy and successful man was reading what was supposed to be his brother's obituary in the newspaper. He suddenly realised that due to a mistake by the editor, the obituary he was reading was actually his own. It read, The merchant of death is dead and described how, as the inventor of dynamite, he'd gained his wealth by helping people kill each other. Deeply troubled by this account of his legacy, the man decided to leave most of his fortune to fund awards for those whose work most benefited humanity. His name? Alfred Nobel, founder of the Nobel Prizes. Today, this is what we remember him for, not the fact that he invented dynamite. And for us, this story raises the question of legacy. For Kimberly Wade Benzoni, a professor at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University, understanding the power of legacies to influence our short-term behaviour is key to tackling long-term problems like the climate crisis. When I first started doing this research, I I got asked the question, you know, why are you in a business school? Why aren't you in like some policy school? And I was like, well, because, you know, our business school students are the leaders of tomorrow. That's where all the power is. And that's, that's if you want to change things, you have to work within the system. We need to figure out how we can get people to change their behaviors. Legacy gives people symbolic immortality, and leaving a great legacy is one of the most powerful things a person can do with their lives and careers because they can continue to have influence even after they're gone. In their many studies into the psychology of leaving a legacy, Kimberly and her team identified three different kinds of legacy all of which are defined by the people who will benefit. So there's the individualistic kind that essentially benefits you, like naming a building or a statue or indeed a prize after yourself. Then there's relational legacies, which simply means leaving something for someone you are related to, to someone you know, like an inheritance. And then the third is something called a collective legacy, which benefits whole groups, such as a university or society at large. So they begin these studies with a little writing exercise. What it looks like is we do a short essay. We ask what kind of impact do you want to have on future generations? How would you like to be remembered? 
It just gets people thinking in more holistic ways. It helps them think in more long-term ways. Their sort of circle of moral regard is expanded to include other people, future people. After doing the writing exercise, they asked people to divide their wealth between those three different categories of people who benefit from it. And it turns out that simply getting people to think more about their legacy had a massive effect. What we found was that led to significant reduction in the amount allocated to relational categories like one's own children and a significant increase in that allocated to collectivistic categories like charities. There's another strategy that they used that was also very effective. That is death priming. What I mean by death priming is that we remind people about death. What we did was we found different newspaper articles, real ones. Some of them involved the death of a person, such as an article about a plane crash. And then we asked them to allocate some resources between themselves and other people in the present versus other people in the future. When people hadn't been reminded about death, they allocated more resources to the present. But when they were reminded about death, we saw a striking reversal of that effect where people allocated more to others who would benefit in the future as compared to the present, which is what made it so impactful and startling. When people are reminded about death, they remember that they don't want to die. They, they want to live but they understand that death is inevitable and that fact can create an existential dilemma. One of the most effective things we can do to buffer our anxiety about death is to attempt to transcend death by finding meaning in our lives. And central to this meaning is that we have impact that persists beyond our physical existence. So legacy gives us a little bit of symbolic immortality, and that's one of the most fundamental and powerful of human motivations. Given that Elua thinks about death a lot, do Kimberly's findings resonate with her? Does thinking about death help us think about the people who will be around after we die. When thinking about death, I think it has the capacity to really collapse this idea of time. 102 billion, are the estimates, have lived and already died. 102 billion. And that's going back quite some time. When I keep thinking about my one lifespan in connection with all of time, it has the capacity to zoom me all the way out, look at mankind, humankind, that I am just one thread in the big tapestry. Thinking about death is central to being a good ancestor because you're thinking necessarily about what the world looks like after you die. And it requires you not to be the center of the universe anymore. And I think being a good ancestor implies that people will come after you and so the job is to live as well as possible, preparing for what happens when I'm no longer here. And I think the best way I can do that is by doing the best that I can while I'm physically present.
Elua has created a long-time practice for you to connect with your own mortality. You'll find it next to this episode in your feed. It's a profound guided meditation that brings us into the moment of our own death. So if you're feeling positive and ready, do find some quiet space and give it a go. Hi, my name is Dora, and I'm one of the teachers at Headspace. There's a lot of incredible ideas being discussed here at the Longtime Academy. So I thought you might like to take a moment to let some of these ideas sink in. I invite you to take some nice, big, deep breaths with me. So sitting upright, feet connecting to the floor. We'll just be breathing in through the nose and out through the mouth. Breathing in, down into the belly. And then letting everything go out through the mouth. And again, breathing in. Breathing out. The last breath, breathing in. And letting everything go. just taking a moment just to notice how those breaths felt. And if you'd like more of this, along with meditation courses, sleep and focus exercises, join me inside of the Headspace app. Go to headspace.com and use code LONGTIME at checkout for 30 days free. That's headspace.com using code LONGTIME at checkout. Now back to the show. Welcome back. When we think about our mortality, it can make us feel that we need to squeeze everything into this one lifetime of ours. But actually, that isn't the case. There's this beautiful idea called cathedral thinking, named after those huge buildings that sometimes took many lifetimes to complete. It refers to projects that span generations, that won't be completed in one lifetime creations that we work on with colleagues who haven't yet been born. I wonder, what cathedrals would you like to be part of building? Now, let's zoom out from those cathedrals, literal or metaphorical, to the wider world that will exist beyond our lifetimes. The future. It can be hard to think of the future, right? When I ask you to imagine that world, what's the first image that comes into your brain? What do you see? Until recently, I've got to confess that whenever I thought of the future, I thought of space, of that immense darkness punctuated by shiny, smooth space travel. The future was full of technology, clean and, well, kind of featureless. It was hard to grab hold of, like it literally felt up in the air and it was located in a galaxy far, far away. This all made the future feel so distant and really hard to engage with. 
But then reading the work of author Jay Griffiths really challenged the way I see the future. Back in 1999, she wrote a book called Pip Pip, A Sideways Look at Time. And today, her ideas have never felt more relevant. The way in which the dominant culture has pictured time is that the past is below us in the ground and under our feet, and what's beneath us is to be scorned. We speak of what is above us positively. We talk about rising above things and, you know, sinking down into the slough of despond and that term for the royal family, your royal highness, that somebody who's your, quotes, superior in a hierarchy is above you. And there is a sense in which that hierarchy has been put almost as a template onto time. Time and the past being below us is something that the dominant culture can regard as being beneath our attention, not important. You know, that the past is something that soils us. The ground is where we bury the dead. It's earthy, it's grubby, it's, it's, it's so ordinary that we can just forget about it and head for the stars because that's where the future is. And the future is above us. Whereas what actually holds the future, what regenerates life, is the soil. It's teeming with goodness. Historically and mythologically and spiritually, we've been educated to think that we're surrounded by angels. Angels are in the air and they're above us and beyond us and reaching into the heavens. What I would say is that we are surrounded by angels, but they're called ants and worms and flies and caddisflies and bees and all sorts of things. They're doing the work of the angels. They're giving us food. Just quietly and eternally providing life on Earth with what it needs to survive. And many of them right in the heart of the soil. It takes about a thousand years to create an inch of soil. And it's miraculous soil, and it's this living skin that surrounds the whole world, and yet we despise it. The concentration on so-called exploring outer space and, you know, Elon Musk's arrant nonsense about, you know, we are an interplanetary species. It's a sterile pursuit, finding with such ecstasies that there's evidence of a drop of water on some planet when we have water here, but we are damaging the watercourses. We're eroding the soil to such a degree that there might be maybe 30 harvests left, maybe 60, maybe 100, but we should never, ever have got to the stage of needing to count them. 
we all have to start with our toes in the earth. This is what actually holds the future. And this is where it's precious. It's the precious, ordinary earth. This idea that the future is earthy rather than in outer space has been quietly revolutionary for me. The idea that rather than reaching for the stars, we might instead take off our shoes and feel the future firmly beneath our feet. It makes the future start to feel more visceral, more real, and within touching distance. It starts to make me feel more connected to it. And so, with our feet planted firmly on the ground and our gaze turned downwards, this is a good time to rejoin the anthropologist Vincent Iolenti. He's waiting for us at the Onkelo Nuclear Repository to take us on the next step to becoming polytemporal beings. Watch out, like, Vincent, watch your head. Oh, yeah, there's actually uh, uh, 420 metres of bedrock above our heads. It's a... Uh extremely dense mixture of ancient granite and rock that was formed nearly two billion years ago. Two billion years. I can't begin to get my head around that. Vincent, your book is called Deep Time Reckoning. What is deep time? Uh, Deep time refers to the very, very long-term time spans of our species, of our planet, and of the wider universe. The idea originated with the dawn of modern geology in the late 18th century. And today it underlies a lot of our thinking about all sorts of things, like radioactive materials found in places like Onkola. For example, uranium-235 has a half-life of 700 million years. When our species emerged 250,000 years ago, when language emerged 50,000 years ago, and thinking about the waxing and waning of glaciers from ice age to ice age. Now we know the definition, let's find out how we actually grapple with deep time. Meet Marsha Bjornerud, a professor of geology and environmental studies at Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin. She can help us start to see the world through a geologist's eyes. Thinking like a geologist is to see the world as something that is always still becoming. It's not a fait accompli. (laughs) It's something that is always evolving, continuously changing, never reaching an equilibrium point. In that landscape that's so obvious, process is evident. You can see glaciers slowly carving the landscape and sometimes suddenly calving into the sea. You can see the effects of gravity on slopes with permafrost melting. Everything just kind of looks like it's slowly oozing down slope. Maybe people have heard of the term palimpsest. It's used by medievalists to describe a manuscript that was written on parchment, which is a difficult thing to produce. And then instead of just discarding it, when when you needed a new piece of parchment, scraping off the old parchment and, and re-inking. And that's really a very good metaphor for the way geoscientists see landscapes or indeed the Earth as a whole, as this constantly 
rewritten, erased, partially, and overwritten text. So Marsha advocates for a practice she calls timefulness. I love this word because it sums up what we're trying to do here, which is about being mindful about time. Timefulness is the habit of seeing in four dimensions, with the fourth dimension, of course, being time. Not looking out onto a landscape and, and seeing it as something that is inert and static, but something that is evolving, changing, becoming. It's something that we can, with practice, see wherever we are. And once you develop that habit, I think it makes you feel a sense of kinship with that landscape and a feeling of connectivity that is, I think, a source of existential comfort. In cities, we see the, the effect of time, the slow evolution of the landscape and the way that people have lived on it. So New York, for example, the island of Manhattan, which is really, you know, the economic center of everything, there's a very obvious geologic logic to the way it was built up. So the really tall buildings in Manhattan can only exist in the places where the bedrock is close to the surface because buildings 50, 70 stories tall need to have deep pilings into a stable substrate. Only the northern part of Manhattan and the southern part of Manhattan have bedrock like that. It's, it's called the Manhattan Schist. It's beautiful. It's exposed in Central Park. It has beautiful red garnets in it. And then in between is kind of an old valley that's filled with glacial deposits, which are just clayey and not as stable. And so that's really dictated the whole way that the financial district has been built up. So thinking geologically can give insight into the way that cities and societies more broadly have evolved. It's always about land and it's about resources we always have the illusion that somehow we've outgrown nature. No, nature sets the stage for almost all of our enterprises. It's quite common in introductory geologic textbooks to depict all of geologic time, 4.5 billion years, as a 24-hour clock. And... On that clock, humans, modern humans, appear just at the last fraction of a second before the midnight hour. And while that is literally true and it's important in developing some sense of proportion and the relative durations of the intervals on the geologic timescale, the inadvertent effect of that is it sends a wrong-headed message about our place on Earth now. It denies our very deep evolutionary roots in geologic time, but also denies the very outsized impact that we are having right now. And then finally, there's this kind of weird apocalyptic implication of that 24-hour clock that what happens after midnight, is that the end of time? It, it is not a future-looking depiction of time. 
One way that our place in geologic time is commonly described is through a new term, the Anthropocene. This is the idea that sometime in the last 50 to 75 years, we humans have become agents of geologic change on a par with things like volcanoes, rivers and moving tectonic plates. Humans, it tells us, are very bad for the planet. So at this point, I'd like to introduce you to Tyson Juncker-Porter. Hey, students of the Long Time Academy. Um, and an indigenous thinker, for want of a better word. <laughs> He's a lecturer in indigenous wisdom at Deakin University in Australia, an artist and a member of the Aboriginal Arpletch clan. This means he's part of one of the world's oldest living cultures. For him, an indigenous perspective on our place in the world is key to understanding humanity's place in deep time. I've spent a lot of time travelling all over Australia, working with all different Aboriginal communities and elders, and looking at the knowledge systems and processes rather than just the little items and bits of content and information. There's a lot of wrong story about our past that doesn't really line up with what we are. A lot of us believe it and we just feel like we're missing something. People have this sort of signal, this frustration signal deep inside. They've got a longing for something. They don't know what it is. We've all been told that, you know, our pasts were based on having a relationship with the environment as an enemy and that we had to battle and battle and battle for survival and then overcome nature in order to reach this state now. Because I guess you have to maintain that arrow of time and you have to maintain that myth of progress because that's the grand narrative. From what we know from our story and our oral history and from the ways, the patterns of our societies, the land, you know, it provides everything you need. If you look after it and you are in right relation to it as a custodial species, it's giving you everything. For example, you're the predators. If you are living an indigenous lifestyle embedded in that land base, you know, the predators there, they're your, they're your kin. You know, you have totemic relations with those things. And you have such complete knowledge of, of their cycles and their lives that you always know exactly where they are and you're in profound relationship with them. And you can just see it. Go deep time and look at yourself in the mirror and sort of map backwards to what it would take to create the being that you are. You know, you don't have spikes and... Uh, <laughs> You know, all these things. And, you know, our muscles are useless. Like, as human beings, they're, they're just rubbish <laughs> compared to, like, even beetles are stronger than we are. <laughs> you think about, well, what's the evolutionary niche that such a creature, you know, with such a massive brain that you've got, which, you know, there are shells and artifacts with complex designs you know, carved into them that have been found from Homo erectus, which is which are, are a million years old. This brain has been making meaning for at least a million years, and it took such incredible abundance and knowledge of the land and embeddedness within the landscape to be able to develop that massive brain and to be able to retain these very soft skins that are supposed to sense things 
we're supposed to have this tactile relation, you know, with all the things around us. And so, you know, you get scientists now who are really perplexed in Australia's wildest places where people haven't been for decades and they're sending drones in to take photos of these mangrove forests where there's just millions of acres of dieback in these mangrove forests along the coast. And it's like, what can be causing this? You know, we've tested the water. It's not just climate change. We don't know what it is. And, well, you know, we know what it is. That, that country's sick because there's no people in it filling that ecological niche and, and acting as custodians for that place. You know, we're part of that landscape. We're an organism that does have a habitat. We need to be coming back into a dynamic and um, profound relation with our landscape again. For me, the sense that humans are a custodial species that has evolved as part of nature, not separately, is incredibly powerful. Recent scientific data backs up what indigenous cultures have known for a long time, that humans per se are absolutely not the problem. In fact, nature flourishes when stewarded by indigenous practices. Rather, the problem is actually a specific kind of relatively recent human civilization that treats the land, water and air we breathe as something we can perpetually extract from. That's why some people are suggesting that instead of the Anthropocene, we call this era the Plantationocene or Capitalocene to properly attribute it to the culture that has caused it rather than to humanity as a whole. More on that in the next episode. Last time we met, I told you about the cupboard incident with my nephew. So after this, I really started to explore time and actually set up an organisation with my friend Beatrice called The Long Time Project. One of the first things we did was to create an experimental event where we invited different time nerds to the English countryside to compare notes. Physicists, philosophers, artists, and yes, even a death doula. Sound familiar? Yeah, it was an early version of this, the Long Time Academy. As part of this, some friends set up a deep time experience in a field. And during the course of an afternoon, we walked the history of the universe. And it blew my mind. The world suddenly seemed to glitter with awe and has never looked quite the same again. So that's why I'm really excited for you to come and meet Dr. Stefan Harding, a zoologist in Devon in the southwest of England at the Schumacher College, a place where I once studied in the town where I grew up. He co-founded this International College for Ecological Studies almost 30 years ago, and it's been a place of radical learning ever since. I like your word glittering, that's very nice. I shall use that if I may. I remember learning about deep time at university as an undergraduate and feeling really alienated and, and sort of even more lonely than I was before. 
because of the emphasis on our education on facts. You know, we're told this number, the Earth is 4,600 million years old. By the way, that's 4.6 billion years. That's just a fact. It doesn't actually connect with our emotions. We're not educated to connect or experience deep time. We're taught to live in a very flat world in which we humans are disconnected from nature. It doesn't give us a sense of awe. So one way we can connect with our evolutionary past is to do something known as a deep time walk. The first deep time walks in, in the West were done by Montessori, you know, the Italian educator. She wanted children to get a sense of how ancient the Earth is, that you are the modern product of, of that incredible evolutionary process. This involves going for a walk that maps the long history of the planet to a physical distance, so that you are stepping through time, walking the past of the planet up to the present day. The Earth is 4,600 million years old, so we walk 4.6 kilometres, representing the immense age of the Earth. And on that scale, every millimetre we walk is 1,000 years of Earth history. Every metre we walk on the deep time walk is a million years. The fact that you are walking, moving your body, means that you understand this history very differently than if you were trying to grapple with it in your head in the abstract. Imagine I'd tell you swimming in the sea is the most wonderful experience. OK, sounds nice, you know, sounds good. But you don't know what I mean until you've actually experienced it, until you've actually swum in the sea for yourself. So it's a difference between an intellectual description of something, you know, the Earth is 4,600 million years old, that's a fact, and actually experiencing that fact through the movement of your own legs, through the, the, the way the landscape changes around you as you walk through deep time. The more I realize emotionally, spiritually, intuitively that the Earth really is alive in a much more powerful way than I had ever imagined or that my science had ever told me. For example, today I noticed there was an incredibly small, lovely light green iridescent beetle on my hand. And I realized that we've both emerged from this unbelievable evolutionary story and we both exist as a result of deep time. And of course, if we have that, the sense of awe, then we want to do something to make our lives uh, fruitful and useful in relation to each other and to the earth. So you see that awe isn't just a personal emotion. It also has implications for action. It means that we start getting involved in movements to bring about change that's going to help our planet to thrive and to be healthy once again. So awe is, is incredibly important. Stefan has made it his life's work to bring the awe back into deep time for as many people as possible. One of the ways he's done this is by creating an app version of a deep time walk, meaning anyone can do this anywhere. You just put the headphones on and start walking. Welcome to the deep time walk, a history 
of the living earth. And one of the interesting things is when you do that, that you know, you're walking through a city and you're seeing buses and skyscrapers and whatnot. At the same time, you're also immersed in deep time. The first true, very primitive mammals now. And the amphibians. To give us a taste of this awesomeness, Stefan's created the Well of Deep Time, a 15-minute Longtime Academy practice which you can find next to this episode in your feed. My experience of doing deep time activities is that they really do leave me with this sense of awe. Awe is this incredible emotion that enables us to experience the world in a completely different way. And that is a glorious thing. There's also wellness benefits of this. Don't just take my word for it. A Stanford University study has shown how experiences of awe can kind of expand our sense of time and promote well-being. Cognitive scientists have shown how creativity can be sparked by perceiving all sorts of new things we haven't noticed before and little traces of deep time in our lives can be one of those things. This sort of stuff can help us overcome mental blocks, right? It can jump the mind into new planes of thought where you weren't before and kind of when you return, you can see new things, right? And it's a much more interesting trip uh, than like microdosing or something. <laughs> This is totally accessible with no drugs or whatever. It's just through the intoxicant that is learning more about the world and its past and future. It is intoxicating, stretching time, traveling across billions of years. It can be beautiful, thought-provoking, and perhaps even a little dizzying. We, we have to remember to return after. We don't want to lose ourselves in deep time. We have to go about our everyday lives, go to work, make appointments, raise the kids, pay the taxes. So I advocate for rubber banding back and forth between deep time and everyday life, right? You got to go out, you got to return. Rubber banding, being able to hold multiple time spans in our head at the same time, is exactly what being polytemporal means and what we've been doing over this last hour. As well as all our time traveling together today, don't forget there's also two long time practices for you to really bring these ideas into your own life. Ah, we need to go now. The trucks are coming in to fill in the tunnels. It's time for us and for all of the humans to leave this place forever. You know, there's actually an elevator we could have taken, but you know, walking's better exercise. <laughs> you mean we walked all that way? Should we head back to 2021? Yeah, I think after all this deep time reckoning, I need a drink. Yeah, me too. Bring on the tea or something stronger, perhaps. <laughs> Thank you for joining me in the Long Time Academy. It's amazing to see how it's growing bigger every day. You can connect with me and your fellow students at thelongtimeacademy.com and find more tools and community there to support you in your long time journey. Next time in part three, we're going to be doing something altogether different as we get long time about the economy. No prior knowledge required. The Long Time Academy comes to you from Headspace Studios and The Long Time Project and is produced by Scenery Studios. It was created and produced by Lena Presswood and me, Ella Saltmarsh, with producers Maddie Finlay and Ivor Manley. Executive producers at Headspace Studios are Ash Jones, 
Leah Sutherland and Morgan Seltzer. Our original music is by Tristan Cassell-Delavoie, Scott Sorensen and Chris Mergier.